There's one of those on. Oh, here we go. We've got some sound. Great. Okay, if everyone can just settle down, I realize it's been a nice coffee break. Um, so just to keep my bit short, so I'm Andy Rayner. I'm the, the Chief Risk Officer of Discovery Limited, and it's my pleasure to chair this next session on something which has certainly been very close to us in the last year or two in terms of developing uh, incidents of cyber attacks and, and this sort of thing. And uh, I don't want to spoil their thunder, but you organizations actually experience an amazing number of attempts every day. It's literally, well, I, maybe you're going to talk about this, but it's, it surprised me when I found out how many attempted entries you get to a business every single day of the, of the year. So this is a real topical uh, subject. So just to introduce the speakers, um, we've got Ricky and Roger from Deloitte, and then we're joined by Alex at the end there from Chubb, and uh, they're each going to speak uh, uh, to parts of the presentation. I would encourage you to um, think of some questions along the way. We have reserved sort of 10 or so minutes at the end for questions, and also bear in mind that you can rate the speakers, um, preferably after they've spoken and not before, on the app, um, so please do that. Um, I think that's uh, pretty much all that I need to say. Uh, I'll hand over to Ricky, who's going to get proceedings started. Thanks. Thank you, Andy. $53 billion. I hope that's something that gets your attention. I'd like you to think whether that is a risk that you'd be willing to take. Lloyds did a study in July of this year, or they published it in July of this year, and they found that, the, that a major global cyber attack could result in losses ranging between 4.6 to $121 billion, with the average estimate being $53 billion. They further went to estimate that about $45 billion of this loss would potentially not be covered by the insurance those companies have in place. Now, in this year alone, we've seen NotPetya, which resulted in estimated global or economic losses of about $850 million. And then we've had WannaCry, which I'm sure all of you are familiar with, and it's estimated that the associated economic losses were $8.5 billion. Now, that is not only the, the cost of the ransom that they got, which arguably they could have actually gotten a lot more for the type of information that they were stealing or destroying from companies. It also includes business interruption, data losses, and all other costs associated with dealing with the cyber attack. Now, despite the potentially large losses, as Andy was saying, the incident is very, very frightening. Barclay did a survey at the end of 2016, and they asked IT professionals whether they had experienced breaches in 2016. One-third of those IT professionals indicated that they did, in fact, have a successful breach in 2016. Now, the scary part comes here. When they asked those professionals whether they're planning on making changes to their security, half of, over half of them indicated that they were not. So that has led me to the conclusion that companies are not taking it seriously enough. And this actually poses a very good business opportunity. Now, you don't need to be an actuary to realize that the minimal, um, the minimal effort being made to changes, or what seems to be minimal effort, combined with the potential losses, makes a good business proposition. In the word of Tim Wellsmore, who works for a cybersecurity firm, it's a business model that works. And unlike actuarial exams, that's me paraphrased, you don't actually need a lot of investment to get a decent return. 
Yesterday, a publication was made on MoneyWeb, which I'm hoping some of you might have heard about. What they looked at was a cyber exposure index, which, was, which is going to be um, talked about in Johannesburg coming very quickly. But the scary part of the information that they released was that a number of the companies that they saw are most likely to, receive, to be breached um, in the near future are presented in this room and are our employers. So just, just for background, this is based on the availability of data on the dark web and also companies that have been compromised by data breaches. So why should you care? No one's going to argue that in today's day and age, it's possible to operate a business offline. Internet has become our, our method of communication. Email systems. Regardless of how good your firewall is, I'm sure all of you have at some point received an email from some cousin in a country that you haven't known of telling you that he's discovered Saddam's millions. Now, you or one of your employees might just accidentally click on that link, and that would enable cyber, uh, a threat to penetrate your system. In addition to that, your suppliers and partners are likely trusted email sources, and you don't have control over their security systems that they have in place. So should they be breached, you might be clicking on a link from a trusted source. Now, all of these could result in many losses, including data losses, reputational damage, business interruption, all of these which um, Roger will touch on later. So I want you to consider it seriously, because that is why we're here today, because we believe that cyber attacks or cyber security should be taken more seriously than it currently is. Roger will speak to us about the drivers of cyber, um, cyber security and cyber risk and how you can best deal with it. We'll then have a quick look at how you can integrate that into your existing risk management and reporting frameworks. And then finally, Alex um, Chubb writes business insurance, uh, writes cyber insurance. So Alex will be talking to us about the, the insurance solutions that they offer. Over to Roger. Thank you very much, Ricky. My name is Roger. I'm from Deloitte. Ricky touched on a few issues that, I, that I'd also like to talk about. It's many years ago when I started out in security and I kicked off on my studies, I read something that said, security is a social science and no social science is an exact science. Okay, and what that illustrates is exactly what she was talking about at the moment. What are the two issues that she raises? She raises attitude. What are people's attitude towards security? And I just want to bring this home and I'm very evangelical about this, is that Cybersecurity is perceived largely as a technology issue. Okay. What we're seeing on a daily basis is that technology is almost the least of our concerns. Our biggest concerns is, of course, dealing with the attitude towards that. Okay. The next big important thing to consider is, as she, she referred to, and why we're on the stage today, and why after 15, 20 years I'm talking to top management about security for the first time, is simply because of the impact that it has on the business. Okay. So we've had to combine a few different themes into this talk, and so we'll put it all together. And uh, what I decided to do is look at five things that I think is absolutely vital for us to remember and take away from that point of view. The first one, is, of course, is to remember that ultimately this risk and this problem comes from our inclination to connect everything today. It speaks about our, our connected technology, and um, that's where it all comes from. 
One of my favorite sayings is that if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, and we tend to connect everything today in order to measure it and therefore manage it. The result of this is that a cyber attack and the impact of a cyber attack is felt at the business level. Okay, we feel it at the very low level, and if you have a look at that table on, uh, on the slide, you can see that we talk about issues above the surface as well as below the surface. The ones along the top is what are the type of things that we specifically see and we tend to think about. But as we go through this, and I deal with this on a daily basis, is those impacts and those effects to the businesses that many people don't think of until it's kind of almost too late. The next one is, of course, th this is very important to remember, the pervasive nature of this risk. I could go to East Africa and do a security assessment on a mine and go back four years later. This risk is completely different. It's pervasive. We need to run programs and not projects. We're hiring people into full-time positions to start to deal with this. It is not an assessment that we can do today and maybe do a year later. The environment is so dynamic and changing so quickly that it's something that we're going to have to deal with almost on a daily basis. And I have a personal prediction. I don't think it's going to be long before they start to teach cybersecurity in the business schools simply because of the massive impact that it is having on businesses when it manifests itself. Okay. Um, the next one, of course, is uh, the reality is that management oversees this risk and it speaks to, to impact. Management oversees policies, procedures, and uh, strategic role in, 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 in oversight and interrogating your actual ability to deal with it and recover from it. Um, the next one is, of course, management, including risk as a regular agenda, and we're seeing this everywhere. We're seeing it on the, um, in, in all of our risk agendas at the moment. It's coming out an internal audit, and uh, many, many companies are putting it right at the top of a list of priorities. Okay. The other one is that, of course, management need to begin to understand the defensive value chain. And the reality is that we're not going to turn you into hackers. You don't have to become deep technology experts, but you do, as at a management level, need to be able to sit today and say, what are we doing today? And six months later, say, what have we done? How effective have we been? What is our return on investment? Okay. The next thing I'm going to look at is our tactics, tools, and uh, procedures. Those are a few of um, the tactics and tools that hackers are using out there at the moment. And um, what's very important to remember is I heard, I read an article where the Chinese refer to the risk landscape and the cyber point of view as the battlefield without gunpowder. And who do we find on that battlefield today? We find hacktivists. We find nation states, absolutely. We find criminal groups. We find individuals. Some 16-year-old kid who came home from school in India downloaded an exploit off the internet and just causing absolute havoc in the mining industry of West Africa, for instance. Okay. One of the other things that we're starting to deal with is that Weapons that were designed for warfare many years ago started to be used in bank robberies and the commissions of crime. The same thing is happening today. WannaCry, NotPetya, all of these come from an exploit, exploit called Eternal Blue. So what we're dealing with is that exploits that were designed by nation states are now being released into the wild and sold on the dark web for 15 or $20 for just about anybody to download and actually execute. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to go too deep into this because we could talk about this for days. Okay. 
The next one we'll look at is threat, threat vectors. What are the threat vectors? What are the types of things that a hacker is going to come looking for? How are they actually attacking you or your organization? And the reality is that the first one I always like to look at, which is the most pervasive threat, is your employees, the individuals. And what we speak to over there is the issue around they will click. An analogy I like to use there is that you have a receptionist sitting at your front desk. They get an email from the U magazine or the drum magazine, and it looks like uh, they can get a free subscription to the local cookbook for the next three, three months. And what do they do? They click on the link. And effectively, what they've done is it would be very much the same as your domestic servant at home opening the door to somebody in an ESCOM overall after you've spent 250,000 Rand on your home security. They are going to click they will open the door. And therefore, your employees, the individuals, are the biggest threat vector at the moment. And they are susceptible to all of those issues around social engineering, etc. We're looking at your smart devices. Email, if you remember about email, once you've sent an email, it's gone. And I think recently we've learned that once something is recorded electronically, there's absolutely no chance of calling it back. We look at our customers from a supply chain point of view. Our businesses are spread right across the globe today, and I've dealt with clients who have said, we haven't been hacked. But a number of people within our supply chain have been hacked, and it's had an absolutely catastrophic effect on our factories, for instance. We look at mobile devices. Okay, what are, you, what are your employees? What are you carrying on your mobile device? Who owns that device? But what data is sitting on that device? You can secure the data on that device, but if somebody goes to a malicious website and uh, malicious software is dropped onto that device, they get access to usernames, passwords, etc. It's very, very important, and it speaks to the extension of the frontage of your IT or data environment today. It's no longer limited purely to your office environment or your endpoints. Speak about our suppliers and partners, and those also reference your customers, supply chain risks. Um, another one around the customers, for instance, is um, you're giving people access into your environment. They're logging into um, through via VPN. You don't know who's sitting on their endpoint and who's getting access to those credentials. Very often I feel sorry for the financial services industry because the reality is that people are getting access to credentials, logging in legitimately, and illicitly removing funds from accounts. The other one around mobile devices, I don't know if any of you have picked it up recently, something that we call the crack, uh, which is your key registration attacks. Within the last two weeks, they've managed to actually break the WPA Wi-Fi signal, okay, which means that they can literally intercept Wi-Fi signals at the moment. Okay. How prevalent it is as an actual hacking exploit at the moment, we don't know but there's going to be a patching right across the world as we patch every single Wi-Fi router. And your in inclination is to say, well, that's fine. Our organization, we will patch everything. That's great. But what about your employees who go to the local news cafe, sit in a coffee shop, and log on to a public Wi-Fi um, hotspot? Does that create a risk for the leakage of your data or access to your environment? Okay. So I'll look at a few case studies. I'm not going to go into this in too much depth because Ricky's spoken in depth about the actual impact and the costs, etc. Um, I think we've all seen these in the media, so I'm not going to go into that too much. But uh, what we are seeing from the case studies is 
case studies are pushing us into accountability, and so we start to look at accountability. Where is accountability falling at the moment? We're looking at our board-level obligation and the publication of the King 4 report, which means that we've pushed from a governance point of view accountability right to the highest level of our corporations, and it's falling on the shoulders of the board nowadays. Okay, so as we say, it's no longer an IT issue, it's a business and a board issue. Okay, what that's doing is it's also pushing personal accountability onto executives. And we can see that through the case studies, because as these major breaches occurred, many executives lost their positions, and that's a reality of where we are today, and that's just one of the driving factors. Other considerations that we can look at is we're looking at our, our inclination to measure things and how we're managing it. And so what I'm saying to you today, and I'm hearing this feedback from security individuals in many organizations, they're coming to me and they're saying, you know, Roger, they've written a new application and they've deployed it into the wild and it's giving our client base great service, but nobody's thought of security. Who carries that accountability? Those are the types of issues that we're dealing with from a cyber point of view, and that's what Ricky mentioned earlier on, is people are not taking it seriously yet. Yeah. Confidentiality regulatory frameworks. What is your regulatory framework from a financial, point, financial in, industry point of view or your specific sector and industry? Brand reputation, market perception, there's been a lot said about this. I can show you empirical evidence where brand and reputation has, has been reduced and, and been adversely affected, but we're finding specifically with our millennials, okay, they tend to be less bothered about the loss of data and actually the protection of their own privacy. Quite strange, very different to your X and, and Y generations, but something to consider depending on the nature of the business that you're in, um, your brand, your, your reputation. Security as a market differentiator. Many organizations are starting to say, come and trade with us. You can trust us with your data. Okay. Many organizations, of course, then going ahead and they're going through the ISO 27000 accreditation, accreditations, and they're using that as a marketing tool. And then, of course, what I'm also seeing is diff diffusion of commercial benefits. As we deploy robust security systems into certain environments, it's bringing back a tremendous amount of data that we're finding very, very interesting and very useful from a commercial point of view. Okay. Okay, most recently we've had the Gupta leaks. The reality is that we don't specifically know where the leak came from or how it happened, but I think as a society, from a governance point of view, it's taught us a tremendous amount, and what it's taught us right across the board is that whatever you send out there in an email, you can never retrieve, and whatever you do in electronic or te technology format could potentially come back and have an adverse effect on you. I think it, 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 it's definitely had a great diffusion of benefit, um, but it's very, very illustrative of exactly how badly institutions and initiatives can actually be compromised through electronic and technology means. And so we move on to the actual risk management and what can be done about it. There are 10 questions that are absolutely vital to be asked by each and every one of you from the lowest all the way up to the, to the highest level. Okay, we ask this at board level, but it permeates all the way through into the business, different business, business units. We ask ourselves, are we demonstrating effective management of our cybersecurity, our data, our information security? We're saying, do we have the right talent and the right people in place? Do you actually have somebody in place taking care of this? 
Have you extended that due diligence? Do you understand yet what your, 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 um, your actual risk es escalation frameworks are? What are your appetites? If somebody gets a phishing email or you feel like someone's trying to hack you, what does an employee do? Do they actually know how to escalate it? And when it gets to your information security individuals, do they know what your risk appetite is and what needs to be done? Do we understand what we're investing in? What are we investing in? Are we measuring the, the return on investment? Okay, that's very important. And then, of course, um, how, how do we align to our peers? Each and every sector, you need to look out further and see what are the rest of your peers doing. And of course, it's very important to understand your specific risk landscape and your risk exposure, but it's, it's always valuable to look at your peers. What have we done to protect our organization against third-party risks? Who do you link to? What are the chances of, of lateral infusion from other parties that you are connected to? Okay. Can you rapidly contain damages? Can you actually react to it? Ricky said to me earlier on when we suffered our breach a few weeks ago, she said, because we work for very different business units, and she said to me, as soon as it happened, and it happened in the United States, she said, as soon as it happened, we got a notification, they locked down the servers, it was like there was a train running through the building. Okay? We were ready. Our incident management response kicked in straight away, the policies were there, the procedures were there, and we rolled out and, and we contained that situation. Can you say the same thing about your organization? Okay. Do we evaluate how effective our organization's risk program is? And that comes back to the ROI, because ultimately what you're doing is you're going to executives and you're saying, we need to spend this money, but can we come back six months later and say, this is how effective it's been and this is the return on investment that we've got? And uh, are, you, are you the strongest link or how do you sit from a vulnerability point of view in, in your supply chain with the rest of your partners? Okay. Are they creating risk and vulnerability for you or are you potentially creating risk and vulnerability for, for them. And so we just look at a basic risk profile and, and how to start looking at this. And I think in a nutshell, we need to understand who might attack you. What would they be after? Are they after your operation or are they after your data? What are their possible tactics? Okay. And of course, what are the cyber programs and governance that you have in place to take care of that? And through that, we start to look at just seven basic steps that I would say is absolutely vital here. And you need to integrate your cyber program into your business strategy because ultimately the nature of how technologically centric we are in everything we do today, it speaks to the very strategy of our businesses. Yeah. Banks are technology companies. Many companies are first and foremost technology companies. We've seen that with the big breaches we had in the logistics industry. All of a sudden the trucks are not such a big issue as what they were in the past. Protect the heart of the business. What are your critical operations? What, is your, what are your crown jewels from a data point of view? What is Poppy saying? What is the GDPR saying from an EU point of view? Don't allow gaps to leave you exposed. Develop a strong security risk framework. Have something in place that you can continuously measure yourself about uh, against. Non-negotiability, uh, non-negotiable areas to fortify against. And then, of course, uh, very important, security starts right at the very top. And... Um, the last slide from me is the three points that we speak about and we, we concentrate is be secure. Secure your environment. Be vigilant. Okay. How many of you heard about the crack attack before I mentioned it now? This is ultimately, there you go. Okay. It's ultimately a major vulnerability. Somebody in your organization should have eyes on 
the glass at some stage and picking up these risks and threats before they actually manifest themselves. Not Petya, Eternal Blue, these types of risks, they were actually very, very rudimentary attacks. And if your basic systems had been patched, you would have been fine. And then, of course, what's ultimately uh, vital to us today is your resilience. Okay, because it's a given. It's a given that most of us are going to be hacked at some point. We have a very big frontage across the globe, but ultimately the most important thing to us nowadays is the ability to be resilient, recuperate operations, and maintain that commercial operation that is ultimately the reason why we've got to work on a daily basis. Okay, that's all from me. Thank you, Roger. So I must say, Roger mentioned a lot of things that I am going to mention, so I hope you guys are really going to learn well today. They say you have to hear something three times to remember it, so maybe Alex will do the third repeat. So I'm sure most of the companies in here are insurers just because of the nature of where actuaries work. So you'll either have to, have to comply with Sam when it goes live in 2018, or if you don't work for an insurer, you likely have a very you have a ERM framework in place. So what I'd like to consider is what Roger has said and how we can incorporate that into our existing reporting framework. So you'll have a risk policy or an also policy in the case of SAM, and that's what your board will consider when they're looking at the uh, at the risks that your business are exposed to. So what processes and procedures do you have in place? Do you have the processes that Roger was just mentioning? Have you tested them? Does the person that will be needing to deal with a hack or a breach know what they will have to do in the case a breach does happen? What reporting structures do you have in place? Should your employee click on the link of, million of millions of dollars or the use subscription, do they know who to report it to? And are they able to do that without risk of getting in trouble? Because the fact of the matter is, if they get in trouble for reporting it, they're likely not going to report it, because if they don't report it, you're likely not going to know who it was. So incentivize your employees to actually report the risk and the breaches should they happen. How are you measuring or quantifying your exposure? Earlier I mentioned that there's a one-third of companies that were successfully attacked. What's the probability that you've allocated to, a, to the risk of being attacked? Is it high enough that the risk actually shows up high enough in your risk register to get the attention of the board? Or are you saying that you are so secure that even the, the most recent attacks, which I'm sure all of you have worked from a, from a coffee shop, that even such attacks would not harm you? If you are saying that, I hope you're right. And finally, what is your risk appetite? How much of your risk are you actually retaining? And are you only retaining as much as you intend to? Now, we're aware of different, of different ways of dealing with risk and how to best protect yourself, but if you are considering ensuring a portion of that risk, that's what Alex will be talking to us about now. Hi, so we're on to the fun part of the presentation. Now we're on to the insurance bit. So first of all, where does insurance, where's our role um, in this? And first of all, we try and make sure that it's not actually a grudge purchase. We try and make sure that it's part of a holistic approach to the risk management of the organization. It also has to be part of a tripartite relationship. So you're looking at you know, the relationship between the client, a lot of it in risk management, the broker, and then the insurer. 
So what you're looking at is, as Roger has gone through and Ricky, your approach to risk management and your approach to cyber resilience and cyber risk management can often be at different stages depending on your maturity as an organization, as well as your exposure to cyber risk. Um, a lot of what we're asking you to do as insurers is to be as aware as you can be. You know, you can't, what is it? You can't manage what you don't know and you can't manage what you can't measure. So a lot of what we are looking at is um, clients being more prepared, being more aware of their risk environment and about their data environment. And in order to do this, working through with the broker um, who can help you with things like benchmarking your exposures, benchmarking the limits to be bought, um, particular areas of concern, and obviously working with the insurers, looking at trends in claims. From the insurer's perspective, as I said, it's really about making sure that we understand as much about your business as we can, and that only comes about if the right analysis um, and simulation exercises have actually been taken care of by the client in advance. So what happens in the first 24 hours of a cyber event? So we've got two steps here. So the first two steps need to really be done in advance. A lot of this Roger has covered. But you're looking at making sure that you've done your risk profile analysis, that you know what kind of data you have, that you know how sensitive it is, that you know your data pathways, you know, what can you access from one part of the system. Um, if you understand that, then the third part, which is actually what happens once the event takes place, is when you're actually analyzing the actual incident, you're already streaks ahead. And this is where insurance steps in, because the minute an event occurs, we step in, in with incident response costs and incident response managers. One thing to bear in mind, um, as Roger was saying, that you know, sometimes it's, it sounds very virtual to talk about cyber, and normally we're used to talking about more practical kinds of security, that if you think about things like disaster recovery planning, which everyone is a lot more familiar with, um, you know, people normally plan for these exercises, and yet you'll still end up in a situation where um, your employees will end up arriving with their laptops but without the power cables, um, or you'll end up at the venue who have also planned for this and they won't have enough plugs or adapters. So when you look at, you know, when you're looking at something that you're actually planning for, you can see the value in running these exercises, especially when it's so much more theoretical and so much more virtual. Um, the other thing that I really would add, um, and it just backs onto what the others have been saying, um, this is not an IT issue. It's no longer okay and enough to sort of say, well, you know, someone in IT will fix this and someone in IT will know what's going on. A lot of conversation has to be had within the business to make sure that we understand that there's transparency, so that the IT department is involved, um, and that there's a level of transparency and familiarity with IT issues and cyber issues. So once an event takes place, as I said, your insurance company will appoint an incident response manager. And essentially, when you look at that, they'll get the first notification of loss. And from then, all of the little gray circles sort of, they start off. So you're going to be looking at things like regulatory notification, particularly with, uh, when, uh, when Poppy comes into effect. Um, public notification, you will have to make each individual concerned um, aware of the breach and what is at risk. A lot of that will come into things like identity protection, Call centers might have to be set up. Obviously, a legal response is required. There may be an aspect of extortion involved. Um, IT forensics, most definitely. And very importantly, public relations, where you're looking at protecting that brand and reputation that Roger spoke about. And even where there is a move with the millennials to, um, to be a little bit less fussy about what data they put out there, I think most people are okay with the idea that if your personal banking details, et cetera, are out there, 
then something needs to be done about it. So that's where you go into the kind of identity protection mode. So very quickly, there are normally about six areas of coverage in any cyber policy. Now, the language used on these slides is ours, but you'll find that most insurance companies will, will give these elements of coverage. They're pretty across the board. So privacy liability is, as it says, it's essentially data that has been disclosed that should not have been, okay? And what you're looking at there is you're looking at defense costs, regulatory defense costs, your legal liability, and any fines and penalties associated with that. Often alongside the privacy liability is a security network breach, essentially. But it doesn't have to go arm in arm. You can have unauthorized access to data without actually having had a security breach because you could have one of your employees actually sending an email or information outside of the company. And I think that's where there's a lot of focus on cyber policies being around hacking only. That's not the case, and I'll show you quite a lot of data on claims. As I said, the incident response cost, this is really the crux of the policy. Your internet media liability. So this is anything to do with your electronic media content. So as I said, it could be anything to do with emails that are sent out of the company, uh, disparagement, intellectual property rights, um, even comments being posted on Facebook okay, that are disparaging or uh, uh, defamatory. Cyber extortion is one of the key buzzwords at the moment with ransomware. So essentially the cyber policies will cover this. And once again, the policy can cover it, but what you also need to be looking at is, has your company identified how they will deal with that kind of an issue? Because, you know, will you pay the ransom? That's one question to ask. You know, when will you do that? Who do you involve? All the main authorities around the world encourage you not to, but sometimes it is the only option. And then the last area is business interruption and data asset loss. And this is very simply around, you know, how do you get your business up and running again? Um, how long will it take? Later on, we'll have a look at a few things as to sort of how do you decide how much to buy? Not, not, not whether to buy or not, but how much to buy. And this is where a lot of exercises can help with things like quantification. If you know, quantifying, sorry. Um, if you know how long it'll take to get your business up and running again, and how much money is at stake, um, and what, how long it'll take to get data restored, depending on the maturity of your, of your network, those will start to answer some questions. So all of these are then covered around any kind of, we call it uh, computer malicious acts, but what we're really looking at is any form of hacking, any form of malware, but as I said, any kind of unauthorized access which can often be employee driven. So this is an example, so ransomware, so this is a, um, a case that we had. So we had a car component manufacturing company, and essentially the same thing that happens everywhere. You get a link, you get an email, you click on the link, you download the malware, your data is encrypted, you get a ransom demand, and what do you do? So, in, initially you phone your, uh, your insurance company, or what you'll always have is an incident response hotline. That will then appoint an incident response manager, who will then look at saying, okay, which areas of the policy have been breached? So this is your coverages. So your network security is liability because your network has been breached. You're obviously having a, a ransom where you're now having a cyber extortion event. So again, are you going to pay it? You know, how are you going to pay it? You know, do you have a Bitcoin of, um, ability? Most insurers will have that, um, and they'll use incident response managers to assist with that. Obviously, your incident response expenses, you're looking at everything from IT forensics to legal. Um, and then also going into, if, if it's in the public domain, are you looking at crisis communication as well? 
And then your data asset loss, because not always, it won't always be a case of, you know, give me, the, give me the money and I'll give you your data back. You might end up in a situation where you could pay and you don't get the money back, uh, or the, um, you don't get your, your data back, or the data is in somehow in some way corrupted. Another one, it happens more often than we think, and I'm sure we're all very well aware that sometimes you send emails and you think you're sending it to one Angela and it's going to another Angela. Um, so sometimes you've got to be really care careful about what is said in emails. You can't get it back. So this is another example we had where you know, an internal email found its way to the wrong people, um, particularly the people that they were talking about, um, and obviously um, a defamation lawsuit was filed. So again, the cyber policy is a lot broader than just simply looking at hacking. So as I said, so what, what coverages are triggered? You've got your media liability because you've got a third-party claim, and it's arisen from some sort of electronic media content, which includes emails. And again, same story, the incident response expenses will be, that will be triggered by almost every kind of claim. So whereas it sometimes might be a network breach, it sometimes might be a breach of privacy, but it'll always have some element of the incident response services. So now just looking at some data on where claims come from, where we've seen this, because don't forget, while cyber is a big focus now, it's been around for quite a long time, just in, a very, in, a very, very, in varied forms. So the big red 30%, that's hacking, okay? But if you add up human error, lost and stolen devices, and rogue employees, it actually adds up to more than the hacking. And this is where companies can really see that the more attention you pay to what's going on internally, uh, staff awareness, staff training, understanding your role, every person's role, you know, understanding to be you know, cynical, don't click on every link. You can actually protect yourself a lot. Then looking at industry, where are we seeing the most activity? Now, I think first of all we can say that initially a lot of the activity was in the financial industry, financial services sector. Now this made sense given banking details. And it's not to say, and we'll see it in the following slide, it's not to say that they're not under attack anymore. It's simply that the financial services sector have realized this. They've spent money. They've made a lot of effort. Their security systems are, you know, world class. And they spend a lot of time and money educating their staff. So what's happened is whilst there's still a focus on them, they don't get through as much, and there's actually a lot, a lot more focus on hacking rather than employees. So we'll see another graph. So what's happened is we've moved away from the financial services sector, so more claims are being seen in healthcare. Reason being that if you've got d data from a healthcare provider, you can actually build the fullest, most in-depth uh, profile of someone, which can then be sold for the most um, amount on the dark web. Unsurprisingly, professional services follow on from that, given the uh, amount of data that will be available on things like laptops. Um, Travel and hospitality is another new one. It's an emerging area, you know, putting together a lot of uh, bank details there as well, credit card information. So it's an, an, an ability to build up a profile of what people like doing, where they like going. So just kind of looking at a couple of those in a bit more depth. As I said, healthcare. Unfortunately, um, healthcare is going to be next in line um, after financial services to have to really improve the quality of their, of their systems, their security, and, of course, their training and staff awareness, because what you can see is whilst the hacking is not such a high level, um, the impact of employees is quite drastic. And what it means is that employees are able to get through systems easily and possibly be able to sell that um, you know, very easily on the dark web. Financial institutions we've spoken about, still a lot of um, focus from hacking, but 
we're not seeing as much getting through. And you can see quite low levels of employee engagement because obviously their systems have been um, are really up to scratch. Um, and again, the, tra the levels of training and awareness. So you don't have to, you have, you have uh, employees understanding not to click on things they shouldn't. Next one, public entities. I think that's the highest number at 64%. Um, unfortunately, um, public uh, institutions don't always have the right systems. Um, not enough attention has been paid to the levels of security. So that's not surprising, but it's something to be very aware of when you consider the data that is held by our SOCs. And professional services, as we mentioned before, you know, a lot of data available, but you'll see it's quite evenly split between hacking um, and employee involvement. So a few things that aren't covered, um, so deliberate fraud and dishonesty, it's kind of normal with insurance. Um, what we have is final adjudication language, which basically means until you've been proven to have been deliberately fraudulent, defense costs should be paid. Um, this, of course, doesn't mean that rogue employees are, are, are excluded, because you've just seen how many claims come through from rogue employees. Uh, bodily injury and property damage, now this is a big area. Um, where, where claims are going to start moving towards. And it's a big area of fear because, you know, it's one thing to have data um, at risk. It's another thing to have um, companies at risk who can actually cause bodily injury and property damage. You know, if you think of healthcare, you know, if the theaters go down in the middle of an operation, there's real trouble. If you think about airports, radar systems go down, oil and gas, that's when you're looking at a really big area of exposure. At the moment, those kinds of coverages are, are separately housed in uh, property policies and general liability or casualty policies. So those are the two main areas. You can sometimes get them covered under cyber, but it'll often be very, very limited. So you do have to make sure that those policies talk to each other. Um, you're, if you're an internet service provider that hosts your website, we're obviously not gonna cover that. You have to have control, they have to have their own policy. Um, acts of war are not covered as is normal but cyber terrorism is, um, and unauthorized collection of, of uh, personal data that's covered in poppy as well. If it's unintentional, it'll be covered, but obviously um, that's whole, the whole reason around making sure that the right controls are in place. And equipment and hardware is a property uh, coverage. So just kind of wrapping up a little bit, um, capacity, what, what are the considerations that need to be, con what needs to be considered when looking at what you do with insurance? So what capacity is available? It's growing in South Africa now. There are a number of, uh, um, of carriers who, who offer this insurance. Um, and what you'll see is if you need quite large limits, you'll end up having a layered program. So you'll have a primary market who's from the ground up, and then you'll end up layering it um, with a number of other players. What limit is appropriate? A lot of that goes down to what efforts you've made in, in quantifying your risk, as we've spoken about before. But also having a consideration around what happens if there is a breach, because in the world of directors and officers liability, it's a kind of a catch-all. So the minute you have any kind of issue, whether it's related to pension or a crime issue or whatever, it ends up often falling into directors and officers liability policies. And questions will be asked. How did you, deter how did you determine your approach to cyber insurance or cyber resilience? Why did you decide to buy or not buy? And then, you know, if you bought, why did you decide to buy the limit you did? Was there enough due diligence? Did you do enough work to understand how much you might need? And when you think about that, you're going to have directors and officers policies with claims following on after that. So that's another consideration when you think about your management. They're going to have those questions asked. 
Um, one of the other things too, as we, as we said before, this is not just an IT problem, but it can sometimes be an issue for people to kind of get their heads around because of complexity, and sometimes there's just a fear of it. You know, I get very scared when I phone the IT help desk because normally they just have to tell me to turn the computer on and off. But there is this kind of fear often, and we have to get over that as an organization. Um, one thing to be aware of is condition precedent language. You want your underwriters to underwrite your business at the beginning. When you get a claim, you don't want to have to prove to them that you fulfilled certain conditions like, did you um, uh, renew your passwords every 30 days, every person in the business? You don't want that kind of language anywhere near your policies because otherwise you're going to have to hang on for people to get that incident response manager out. Um, systemic breaches are a huge possibility, Ricky's touched on this, um, especially with the proliferation of cloud, um, and as Roger said, the way that, in, that um, industry is, is linked to digital and technology, but not always with the accompanying levels of security. Um, the scale of losses for the insurance market could be astronomical, uh, Ricky spoke to the report um, from Lloyd's, um, and I think there's, there's another report that basically was saying that when you look at where uh, cyber claims can go, where I spoke about things like oil and gas, hospitality, uh, you know, aviation, governments might actually have to start stepping in because the scale might not be able to be contained by the private insurance market. What's needed to quote? Everything that Roger told you. All of that information will basically be, be um, required in some part of a proposal form that your insurers will ask for. This is um, a stat that I think Ricky also mentioned, but um, what's more important about this is that 32% is actually probably quite low. When we do surveys of, uh, when we speak to clients, um, when we do big seminars by a show of hands, it's normally more around 65 to 70% of people who are aware of some sort of breach in their organization. So he said, take it seriously. And basically the point of this talk is, you know, do you understand your risk do you understand what exposure you have? Do you need to change certain things? Do you need to have some conversations about considerations around how you deal with your risk management, your cyber resilience, and what you transfer? And um, are you prepared? Thank you. Thanks, Ricky. Thanks, Roger. So I think we've got uh, six or seven minutes. Um, I'd like to invite some questions from the floor. So uh, there's some roving mics. There's one question here at the back. Thanks for an interesting presentation. Um, you, you mentioned cybercrime and cyberterrorism a couple of times. And I know other countries like the US and the UK are doing things from a government perspective. Is the South African government or the police force doing absolutely anything in this regard? For example, if something is cyber-terrorism, is there something that declares that it was actually a terrorist attack? I'm just wondering from that angle, rather than companies only protecting themselves, are they completely left high and dry um, from that perspective? Okay, that's working. Um, that's a great question. I, I can confirm that um, the South African police do have a cyber crime unit. How effective they are is, is up for debate. Um, there has been a fair amount of movement within the state security um, organs too. 
But what I continuously put across to people is that the unfortunate reality is, is, is due to the nature of cyber infrastructure, you really can't rely on anybody else to protect you. Um, and that's what makes it very difficult. The government can maintain visibility internationally and look at potential threats to our critical national infrastructure, which in a, a time of conflict will, will come under direct threat. Um, but the, the, the broader reality is that the, the technological nature of what we're dealing with is that you largely have to take the onus upon yourself within your own organization to protect yourself. Hi, just a quick technical question. Uh, I saw something on uh, the show, Mr. Robot. Um, these smart hackers, they seem to be stunned by something called a honeypot, and I was just wondering why many companies just, just install honeypot servers all over the place. I come from an era where the honeypot had a different meaning. I won't go into that. <laughs> but. Um, in a nutshell, what it refers to is what we do within a network is we create a, a position in the network that from an external point of view looks like it might hold something of value. And within that we set up an alarm of some sort and we try to attract almost like a trap a hacker into that honeypot. And as soon as they breach that environment, it sets off an alarm for us, and we, we know that, that, that they're there. So ultimately, it's, 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 it's a trap within a network. Another, we've got time for one or two more questions. Um, Andy, sir, Andy, at the back here. Um, Roger, this question is for you. Um, Alex briefly mentioned the cloud. Obviously, that's a, technolo a technological trend that's um, you know picking up. Is that something that excites you in terms of having professionals like Amazon and Microsoft control the infrastructure, or does that single point of failure keep you awake at night? And Alex, out of interest, do you guys rate based on whether you've got in-house um, infrastructure or whether you are set on the cloud? What's the difference in, in risk? Thanks. Okay, great question, just with regards to technological development. Um, it does keep us awake at night because that's specifically the remit of, of my profession. But I tell all of my clients that don't be scared of technology because the commercial benefits of technological development is still far outweighs the risk landscape as long as that risk landscape is prudently and responsibly managed. So it's, um, it's a bit of a paradox. It's, it's a double-edged sword, really. But it does keep us awake. Okay. Um, so my comments follow on almost exactly. Um, yes, it does impact our rating, but it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, too, because on the one hand, you might have businesses that, if they had to, had to service that aspect themselves, wouldn't have the expertise to do so. So in that case, the cloud is then you know, an advantage. Of course, the systemic nature of it brings in the disadvantage. So you know, if we didn't write companies that were exposed to the cloud, it would be a pretty, pool, pretty small pool of clients. So yes, it does affect it, but it's like Roger said, we can't, we can't do without it. 
So it's a rating consideration in amongst everything else. Okay. One last question. I think Craig, have you got the microphone? To go. So I just want to understand what is the legal implication for an employee who does click on a link that leaks data, um, and are they aware of these legal implications on them? Okay, this is why we say that um, one really needs to take an holistic approach towards cybersecurity. Is if nothing is written into your HR policy and into that employment contract, then you really have no teeth and no claws. There's absolutely nothing you can do with that employee. And that's why when we come in and start to look at these types of things, we make sure that your policies and procedures are pulled all the way down into the employee contract so that ultimately that gives you the scope to use your discretion and if necessary, and you find it relevant to, to, to be able to actually discipline that individual. But from a legal point of view, I mean, there's nothing in the law um, that, that covers that. From an HR point of view, it has to be specified. Yeah. If I can, I'll just add a little bit more to that. So I think we're at the stage now where companies accept that it is a, it is a reality. You know, it's not that they're going to stop themselves being breached. It's more about can they make sure that they're up and running and that they shut it down as fast as possible. And I think that's also where this kind of holistic aspect comes to it because if you as an employee are just terrified that you've done something wrong and you've clicked on that link, and most of us have, you know, I was, I was sent um, an email saying that I was due in court to pay my speeding fines and I was just about to click it because that's what you do. That's how they catch you out. So I think that's that holistic nature of cyber resilience. You need to ensure that the environment in the, in the organization encourages um, kind of transparency. And if you've done something like that, hold your hand up and tell the IT department immediately um, so that they can shut it down. So, you know, we've got to be rea realistic about what can and will happen. If I can just add to that, I mean, the, the, the theft of the YF-22 blueprint that facilitated the Chinese putting that stealth aircraft in the air six months before Northrop Grumman could, and Northrop actually designed the aircraft, came from a LinkedIn breach. Okay, so you're sitting on your laptop at work, somebody offers you a job, and you do what any of us do. We'll have a look. Okay, the recruiter followed up with, a, with another message and said, have a look at the job spec at the end of this link. What did they do? They clicked. There was a, 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 web, a website at the other end and the engineer looked at it and he said, well, he's not particularly interested and he closed it down and declined it. But with clicking that link, they were in. And ultimately, more and more what we're seeing is that these hackers are making it look like it is business as usual and normal and these people are being exploited without even knowing that they've been exploited. And that's the reality of the world that we live in to, to, today. Okay, I think I'm going to have to draw a close to the questions there. Um, just before you all leave, a couple of things. Um, while, as luck would have it, while we've been sitting here, I've just had a, a news bulletin from, this is serious by the way, from Business Day, saying that, um, that 30 million ID numbers relating to household ownership and so on have been leaked today with full details of your income and your ethnic status and your marital status and all these things. So, uh, someone who monitors this stuff in Australia just um, tweeted today that they'd spotted 30 million records that have come probably from the deeds office, I think. 
But all, so probably 70% of you in this room have been hacked today or in the recent past. So maybe you can go change your passwords. Um, and uh, so other than that, just to say that we've now got a 15-minute uh, transition to the next, the closing plenary. And uh, obviously, we'd just like to thank the speakers. Thanks very much. <laughs>